Brilliant, thanks, John. Sharon, this is a, I clearly haven't washed enough today because there's a massive hole in the church here. John, I apologize, you're the only person having to suffer my lack of personal hygiene. It'd be great if you had Mark 1 open. John's already prayed that we would uh, hear from the Lord as we open this passage of the Bible together. That's what we're um, asking God to do, to speak to us. If you're a young person here and you haven't got a sheet yet, there are some sheets at the back that might make the next 20 minutes of your life uh, more bearable as we look at things together. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I got an email from Australia, and I could see in the heading of the email, it was from a woman who sort of writes in the Christian media, you know, speaks at conferences, so I was slightly, slightly chuffed about this. And uh, the title of the email was, A Question You May Be Able to Help Me Answer. And I thought to myself, Good, yeah, you know, that's me. Yeah. I'm the man who can answer other people's questions on the other side of the world. I can see why you've emailed me. And then in the first paragraph, she began to talk about a conference she was organizing in 2018 in Sydney. And boy, did I get excited. I was skim reading by this stage because I thought, when is she going to ask me? I was going down, I was reading quickly, I was already imagining myself packing my suitcase and standing, looking over the beauty of Sydney Harbour. And then I came to the line, the line I'd been waiting for, I was hoping for, She's speaking about talking to another friend of mine. She said, I spoke to him about other potential future speakers from the UK, and one of the names that was mentioned was Graham Bynum. (laughs) I understand that you know Graham well. Do you think he'd be a good speaker and available to come? (laughs) It's crushing, isn't it, when you realise it's not about you? And whether it's that, that parcel that arrives through Amazon, you know, and you're 47 years old, and it's your birthday this week, and this finally looks like a present worth writing a thank you letter for, and you open it and discover it's for your kid's birthday in two weeks' time, and it arrived early. Or whether you're going to your boss's office, and you think, ah, oh, I've had that promotion, it's been on the board, he's going to ask me, and he tells you a colleague's got it. And you sort of smile, and try to look happy for them, and walk out the door and go and stab the little doll you've got of them. <laughs> well, let me, let me top it off for you today. Let me tell you this. Life is not about you. In fact, life's not about you and me at all. God didn't create you for you. He didn't create me for me. And the problem we have in the world is, since the beginning of the Bible, really, since Genesis chapter 3, human beings have believed a lie sold them by the devil. It's all about you. No, really, it is. The world will work better if you run it. It's all about you. Now, you need to be the center of your life. And so that's what we do. We live for us. We spend more time thinking about us than anyone else. But God didn't make the world for us. He didn't make us for us. He made us for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he is what life is about. He is the heart of God's plan, not us. He is the one all things have been made for. He is God's king. And that's very good news. It's where Mark starts his account of Jesus' life in chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, God's rescuing king, the son of God. God himself, clothed in flesh, walking the earth so we might know him. It's news about him. And Mark immediately sets out then in showing us why Jesus is such good news. He shows us the mission of the king. And last week, Jesus started with that very simple and delightfully brief first sermon in verse 15 the time has come he said 
the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. And immediately he shows us what it looks like to repent, to turn from life being all about me, and believe that he's good news. And there are three simple things we're going to see today. Here's the first one. It's the king's people. The king's people. Here they come in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. They're just doing what fishermen do, don't they? They're fishing. And there's no information about their family history, no background checks. We know nothing about them other than they're doing a pretty ordinary, lower, middle-class job for blokes who live by the Lake of Galilee. And Jesus doesn't bother with small talk or introductions. Verse 17, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Mark doesn't even tell us if they've been thinking about God much that day. We don't know if they've been on a a life-explored course or not. But in the words of Jesus, Jesus makes it very clear what it is to be a Christian. Come, follow me. Or, Or literally, come behind me. Follow me. There's no qualification necessary. You need to know that. If you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, there's no ritual for them to perform. There's no standard of life they have to achieve first you just follow jesus you come behind him he leads you follow that that's what it is to be a christian he leads you follow and we saw last week that's fantastic news because the one you're following in mark 1:11 is the one that god says is my son who is the king of kings and the lord of lords who rules all of creation he's the one who god says is i love i love beyond anyone else and yet I have given to you he's the one God delights in he's the one who's going to be the servant who suffers for his people come follow me that one says come follow me but I think that's where the problem starts because we're wired remember to lead life for ourselves we want to decide to do what we want to do we much rather get our own way than anyone else's. And that means, I think, we'd rather that Jesus followed us. He, he came with us. He helped us with our plans. He kept our agenda. He made us feel better about ourselves. He answered our prayers for our children, for their happiness, for their achievements. We want Jesus to follow us and tidy up the mess we make of life and then just let us keep living for ourselves. But he's the Messiah. He's the King. He's the Son of God. I mean, can you imagine getting a, an invitation, say, for a personal audience of the Queen? You know, big, embossed gold letters. You know, come to tea at Buckingham Palace with Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. And you text back the reply, uh, sorry, can't do Tuesday, that's when I go to Pilates. Friday's right out because the kids have clubs on. But if Liz could pop round on t- next Thursday after I've got home from the shops, I'll be able to have a coffee with her then. But that's often the way we treat the Lord Jesus. He's the king. But we think he should follow us. But, but being a Christian is not about him following you or me. It's about us following him. And when we follow him, well, naturally, we're on the same road as him. We're about what he's about. So verse 17 is, is no surprise. The second half I will send you out to fish for people, or literally, I will make you fishers of people. If you're following Jesus, you're going his way. You end up with the same goal that he has, going to the same place that he has. 
and that is to see people become his followers, come into his kingdom. It's as though he says, look, I've caught you now, Simon and Andrew, and what we're about is people catching, so you're going to be catching people with me. And that's what happens. So these very fishermen, within four years, actually within a year of this, they're doing a preaching tour around Galilee. Within four years of this, they're speaking to thousands of people in Jerusalem. Within a decade of this, they've been going all over the world they know telling people about Jesus, because that's what happens. That's the way Jesus is going. His purpose is to bring people to know God through the message about him. So if you follow him, that's inevitable. Now, that's, that's the road he's taking. You see, when you follow Jesus, his concerns become your concerns. His passions become your passions. His desires become your desires. Again, so often when we follow Jesus, I think we're a bit like that picture I have weekly as I stand in the entrance doing the pastorly handshake to ensure the service takes on all of you. It's like that. You go out. It actually seals it for the week. Yeah. Is that I see my wife, Boo, and she's like this. She goes out to, the, out to the, the rooms, where are the kids? She gets one kid, and then she goes back. She releases the kid by mistake in the entrance into the little hall. She looks for another kid. She can't find the other kid. Why? Because the kids aren't following her. They're just distracted. They're off, left, right, and center. She wants to go home for lunch. She says, follow me. They go, oh, no, look, there's something over here. I'd like to do that with my friends. Oh, no, I, I'm still having fun. I want another 25th cars of squash and biscuits. So I am totally wired for the rest of the day and uncontrollable. It's one of the ways we bless parents at church. Come, follow me, says Jesus. But we're off, left, right, and center all over the place. Distracted by so much in life. And Jesus says, no, come behind me. I've only got one thing, only one thing I've come to do, that's to catch people for my kingdom, and if you're behind me, that's what you're going to be about, that's going to be number one in your agenda, one of your hearts is are, catching people for my kingdom, because that's the road I'm walking on. Look how the men respond in verse 18, at once they left their nets and followed him. It's a bit, it's a bit unsettling, isn't it? Yeah, there's no, not much weighing up. And they're not the only ones. We read in verse 19 and 20 about James and John, sons of Zebedee. They're pretty wealthy, but they don't let their wealth disturb them in terms of following Jesus because they've got hired servants. And they've even left their family because they leave dad Zebedee in the boat. You can imagine Zebedee shouting, oh, you two, where are you going? Come back here and finish the job. Jesus is he's not negotiating terms with people here. He's not begging them to join his club. He's not telling them, look, um, these are the fringe benefits of being one of my followers. He calls, they come. He's the king, they follow. It's not about you and me. It's about him. It's not about our life plan. It's about his eternal life plan of bringing people to know his father in heaven. Now, everything within us feels that just can't be good news. Now, remember, we, we like our lives to revolve around us. We want to get what we want. We like the sort of life where all the lights are green for us, when others serve us. But, but look at the world we've managed to create with us at the center. Look at the lives we've managed to create with us at the center. It's the life where you lock your house and your car and your bike and your garage and your garden shed and your garden gate and your computer and your phone's touchscreen. You lock everything you possibly can. It's the life where you walk down the street and you don't catch people in the eye. It's the life of fear. It's a life where our relationships so long, so often are of heartache and brokenness. It's a life of sickness and sadness and sin and death. That is the world with us at the center. 
And that's the world King Jesus has come to change. And that's why when he says, come, follow me, and I'm on one road, the, the road of bringing people to know me, it is fantastic news. And we just begin to get a taste of why it's such fantastic news. And in the second thing we see here in Mark 1, it's the king's power. The king's power. Because Jesus now with his, his first followers, the first four guys, he walks the, the short way back around the lake to Capernaum. It's, it's Simon's hometown. And we see that it's the Sabbath day. That's the day given by God for his people to really think about their relationship with him. So they'd go off to the, the Jewish church, the synagogue, and they'd listen to one of the rabbis teaching from, from the Old Testament, from the Jewish scriptures. And so Jesus goes to teach. But, but the way Jesus teaches is very different. Look, look down at verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Now Mark doesn't tell us why he was different from these teachers of the law. Maybe because when you were a scribe or a teacher of the law, you'd say, well, by the authority of so-and-so from the past. And when Jesus spoke, he kept saying, well, you've heard it said, but I tell you. He claimed personal authority. But I'm not sure that's what Mark wants us to see in terms of authority here. Now, what Mark wants us to see in terms of authority is the result of what happens next. Look down at verse 23 with me. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You see, where the kingdom of God goes forward, the kingdom of evil opposes it. Oh, we've seen that already in Mark. When Jesus goes out into the wilderness in verse 12, 13, we see Satan come and tempt him. You see, Jesus has come to confront and conquer evil in our world. He's come to confront and conquer the devil. Now, now this evil spirit knows it. It's a bit like a, a lad in the bar who suddenly says to you, what are you looking at? It's not really a, a question, is it? <laughs> it's a challenge. Come and have a go if you're hard enough. And this spirit knows Jesus is more than hard enough to deal with it. Have you come to destroy us? And its attempts to uh, take control of the situation by naming Jesus, they come unstuck pretty quickly, don't they? Do you see what happens in verse 25? Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. It's not so much a, a battle as a walkover. It's a knockout in the first round while the bell is still ringing. There's no 11 rounds of blood, sweat, and tears like there was for Joshua Anthony, Anthony Joshua last night. This is over before it started. Jesus' words smash evil. Someone consumed by evil is freed simply because Jesus speaks. Now, now we don't take the devil very seriously anymore, really. Halloween's become like this huge commercial thing, hasn't it? The shops have worked out they can make money out of it. So, so we're all buying little red costumes with horns and forked tails and sort of three forked spears for our kids and going, oh, doesn't she look cute? Isn't she, isn't she a little devil? But the devil is not cute. The Bible describes him as the source of all evil, the father of lives, lies, the, the wrecker of lives. Satan is never a joke. Uh, the Christian writer C.S. Lewis said this, there are two equal and opposite errors 
into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Now, I don't know what you make of this this morning. You might be one of those guys who's sucked into the materialism of our culture. And by that, I don't mean you're obsessed with your car. I mean that you believe there's only stuff in the world, material stuff. But the Bible's very clear. There are spiritual forces of evil. There is one who is opposed to the goodness of God called the devil. And sometimes in our world, evil feels more tangible, doesn't it? Whether it's the the savagery of radical Islam beheading people on videos, or, or even the last fortnight we've seen Facebook Live, a guy go and shoot someone randomly, someone last week kill their baby and then take their own life, seemingly to spite their wife, live on Facebook. Sometimes evil feels more tangible in our world. Rarely does evil take the form that we might see in a, in a horror movie, though there are people in our church who've been saved out of spiritualism, they've come to know God, out of the darkness of spiritualism, people who've been to seances, people who've experienced talking to the dead, people who've seen things like bottles and chairs fly across the room with nothing touched them. It's not a joke. But, but the devil's a subtle enemy. You see, he, he doesn't actually enslave us by throwing us to the ground, foaming at the mouth, rolling around with our head spinning repeatedly. That's not what he does. There's a hint about how he enslaves us in in the way this spirit is described. He's described as an impure spirit, an unclean spirit. See, the, the devil's primary way that he enslaves us is by wrecking our relationship with God. That's what an unclean spirit meant. You were unclean, impure, not able to enjoy relationship with God because of the way you were. And the devil does that by making us so selfish that, well, we just wreck our human relationships. He makes us so anxious about the white goods in our kitchen that we're more terrified about our dishwasher breaking down than than whether we please God this week. He blinds us to think that Jesus is quite happy to be taken off the shelf of life whenever we need him, talked to for a while, and then when things get easier, stuck back on the shelf of life, and we can ignore him again. You see, all the devil wants you to do is believe the lie that it's all about you. That that a life rejecting God, a life lived for yourself, is by far the best thing. It's the lie he sold at the beginning of the book to Eve, and it's the lie he's selling to people today. But King Jesus has come to rid the world of evil. He's come to demonstrate his total authority over the devil. He's come to restore people to relationship with God. And we get a taste of that here in Mark 1 with a word. Someone is freed from evil. And as he continues to walk through Capernaum, he shows us what a world without evil is going to be like. Because it's not just going to be a world where we enjoy relationship with God. It's a world where all the brokenness that has come about because we've rejected our Creator is a thing of the past. Do you see? You see, at the end of his, his uh, uh, preaching in the synagogue, we read in verse 27, the people were all so amazed, they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. Something new is happening. God's Son is here to restore us to relationship with him and restore his creation. But because as Jesus walks out of the synagogue, a massive 
crowd has come to him and he goes to Simon's house. And do you see what happens in verse 29? As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. See, Jesus might be the most powerful king ever to have walked the face of the earth. He might have total power over evil, but he is also the most compassionate man to have ever walked the face of the earth, the most humble man. So when he's told about a a sick woman upstairs, he goes, he heals her. It's instantaneous. There's no convalescing, no week extra off work, no need for another doctor's note. She's up and administering to them straight away. She's healed instantly. No wonder we read in verse 32 and 33 that they bring everyone they can find who's ill or demon-possessed. The whole town gathers at the door. This is enormous news. You see, what's going on here is like a a manifesto from Jesus. And if you're getting the manifestos through the door, I got one from the Lib Dems yesterday, our chance to change the UK forever. And Jesus has come and he said, I'm going to change the world forever. But he doesn't stick a yellow leaflet through your door. What he does is he says, look, here is a picture, an example, a taster of the new world I'm bringing in. As he gets rid of evil in a man with a word. As he touches a woman and she's perfectly healed from disease. It's a bit like, um, imagine Theresa May coming to Kingston, standing outside the hospital and saying, under the next Tory government... There will be a perfect health service. And then saying, I now fix this hospital. And instantly, there being enough staff who are all very happy, who all make the right diagnosis, all the patients are treated, there's, there's no waiting time, you walk into A&E, yeah, it's, it's all there for you. And you think, that's a woman with power. But she's not. See, Jesus demonstrates his manifesto is king. But this is why following him is such good news. This is why coming behind him is the best thing we can do. He's not just a philosophy of life. He's not there just to help you struggle through with the mess you've made. No, he's God's king come to restore God's world. He's the rescuer who's rolling back all the products that have resulted from humanity's rebellion. He's come to take people from this dominion of darkness, this kingdom we've created for ourselves where we've believed the devil's lie that it's all about us, and he's come to bring us into the kingdom of the Son of God, the the Son who God loves, the kingdom where we can have a certainty of a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father and know that in the future we will be with Jesus in a place where there'll be none of the products of our broken relationship, no sin or suffering or sickness or death or disease. That's why it's such good news to follow Jesus. There's never been a man like him. No one has ever been able to do the things that he can do. You see, Jesus is the one who's come to restore you to a relationship with God and to a perfect new world. And he has the power to do it. Of course, in the end, he doesn't do it with a word or with a touch. Now, Mark's gospel is heading to one place. He, he does it by taking your impurity, your selfishness, your desire to think life's all about you, 
and bearing the punishment that that deserves at a cross. See, that's the love and compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He dies to restore you to God, to free you from evil, to make your future in a place where there will be nothing that draws you away from enjoying your relationship with God forever. Which makes what happens next a bit odd, really. Do you see what happens in verse 34? That they're bringing everyone to him. He casts out demons, and then it says, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Well, I thought all publicity was good publicity. Well, why is he damping down the news spreading? Well, I think the last thing we see this morning helps us understand why Jesus does that. And it's this, it's the king's priority. The king's priority. Have a look at verse 35 with me. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, the battle against evil is a very serious thing. So Jesus needs to talk to his Father in heaven. He does it three occasions in Mark, once here. Once when he, he seems to be getting so popular as a king, the temptation might be to think, now is the time for me to have the glory in my rule. And once the night before he dies, when he's battling with going through with this plan to suffer in our place. Every time he prays, it seems that Jesus is praying that he keep the main thing the main thing. And you can see why. Because look what happens with the disciples. Verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they all exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. You're a massive hit, Jesus. The tickets, the tickets for the world tour, they sold out in seconds. Your ratings are sky high. Let's go back to town and keep healing. That's what it's all about, verse 38. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I've come. I mean, it sounds like madness, doesn't it? You've got an enormous crowd in Capernaum, and Jesus says, no, let's leave them and go somewhere else. You're filling the church, Jesus. They love you. The car park's crammed. What do you mean, go somewhere else? No, says Jesus, I've come to preach the good news. Oh, yes, Jesus does the miraculous. He, he cares for the needy. But his first and foremost priority is always to preach the message of his kingdom. That's what he says in verse 39. It's what he does, rather. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. See, Jesus' miracles, they give us a beautiful window into what the future with him is like. But in the end, to enjoy that future with him, you have to hear the message of the kingdom. Preaching this good news is the way that people come to have Jesus as king. Now, the disciples think the popularity is the order of the day. And frankly, you can't blame them, can you? I mean, people are talking about how you fill churches these days as much as back then. And the sort of therapeutic gospel is very popular. It's a gospel of personal healing. That seems to be what the guys back in Capernaum want. They've met someone who will make their lives better here and now. And so, come on, Jesus, do it for us. It's the Jesus who's there for you, who has come to sort out your problems. The Jesus who will heal all your diseases. The Jesus who will ensure your careers are success. The Jesus maybe who will make you wealthy. Actually, sometimes the message can be subtler than that. It's the Jesus who will make you content. The Jesus who enables you to be the person you were created to be. 
The Jesus who makes you feel good about yourself. It's the Jesus who makes life better here and now according to your plan. And the problem with all those Jesuses is repeatedly the word is you. So I was having a coffee this week from a, with a student who's moved from Preston to Kingston. And he said, I've been looking around some churches in Kingston, Daph, and I went to one. It was a bit odd. The sermon, it wasn't really about Jesus. It was more like a motivational talk about me. And that's a message that fills churches, because remember, we love to think life's about us. But the problem is that is a powerless lie. Because it's only preaching that results in demons being driven out. That's why they go together in verse 39. It's only preaching about Jesus and people following him that frees them. And when Jesus looks upon our world, when, when he does triage upon humanity... He doesn't say, look, I think you'll be much better if you earn an extra 10 grand a year and um, your children get the A-levels that you want. And yes, probably if you live at least for 95 years and then die peacefully in your sleep. That's what you need. That's what you need. No, Jesus doesn't look upon humanity and say that. He says, what you need is to follow me because I'm the only one who dies to restore your relationship with God. I'm the only one who's risen to new life so that you can enjoy new life now and forever with God. You need to follow me. And so I know I've got a whole crowd of people to heal, but but I've got to go somewhere else and preach. Preach the good news. So let me end by saying that's why Jesus' agenda has to be our agenda as a church. We've got to point people to him. We've got to fix our eyes on him. If you're a guest or visitor here today, that's what we're about. We want to tell you about Jesus. He's the Messiah, God's King, the one who God has given to us, even though he is the most precious son he loves. And we want to tell you about him because he is the only way you'll be freed from the lies that are enslaving you, the lies of the devil. So let me ask, have you come to Jesus? Are you following him? A life explorer is a great thing to do, by the way, if you're not sure about that, because it's all about him. And for those of us who say, yeah, no, I am a follower of the Lord Jesus, remember where we started? Following Jesus is about coming behind him. And he has just one aim, that people would come to know him, that his kingdom will grow. And so if you follow him, yeah, I think he says to you, I will make you a fisher of people, because that's what I'm about.